Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 podcast. Today is going to be a thriller. I am super excited to welcome Dr. Edward Pena. Dr. Uh, Edward received his doctorate in learning and organizational change from Baylor University. He is a girl dad, uh, which him and I connected on a little bit prior to the show, uh, given that my wife is due in June with a girl. Um, he's also a savage a- athlete, and, and quite frankly, that's how I got to know him, uh, was through uh, various workouts, which we'll touch on during this episode. But more recently than that, um, you know, I learned that I really didn't know much about Eddie at all. Um, and when Eddie, um, shared his story with me, um, you know, I was honored that he, um, would, would take part in joining us today and, and then sharing with us. So first and foremost, thank you, Eddie, for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, I appreciate the invite and, you know, that, that parent life is going to be a whole new blessing and, and a whole set of curses. <laughs> You know, I just noticed as we're recording, we both have our uh, Pelotons in the background. So I imagine, you know, we're, we're going to have, we have similar safe spaces, um, you know, and we need to get away. Um, so without further ado, you know, Eddie, you know, let, let, let's jump right into it. Um, why don't you kind of walk me back into where it all started um, and, and just kind of give the audience uh, some background here, a reminder, the premise of this podcast is to really focus in on those pit to peak moments in life. And, and sometimes those moments can kind of spur a lifespan. Sometimes they're continuing to revolve around lessons that we've learned, you know, at a younger age and, and always going back to those lessons and figuring out how to incorporate them in our, in our older lives. Um, so Eddie, where did life get started? For you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks again for having me on here. Um, I would say for me, you know, I was born in Colombia in South America and my, my life was kind of an up and down, although I was young. Um, I sort of understood later on what, what it meant with everything that went down. Um, and we talked a little bit before the show about what this looked like. Um, but when I was younger, I found out that my father was actually in the, uh, cartel of my local neighborhood. Um, one would think that this is, you know, uh, similar to the show Narcos, but it's not. Um, it's not as uh, eventful or fruitful. Rather, it's sort of this like very uh, existentialist vagueness, right, that exists. Um, and so it wasn't until some like things came to a head at home that my mom kind of decided to uproot us, um, just her and I. Um, get on a plane to Mexico, cross the border and sort of make our way to New York, right? And land of opportunity for a lot of immigrants. And from there, it's just sort of keeping this secret, right? The secret that I was undocumented, the secret of my background, 
um, sort of assimilate this pattern. I think that follows a lot of immigrant families of just like blend in, don't get in trouble, do the right thing, um, and and try not to um, sort of rock the boat a lot. Um, and so I, I kind of moved on through life with that, um, trying to reconcile sort of the uh, nationalism that existed within me from where I was, um, and now you know coming into kind of uh, the American lifestyle. And so it was really valuable for me to consistently reflect on that, but I never really had an outlet, right? If I had down periods or I had moments that, um, you know, issues occurred within my household or issues occurred back home with my dad, um, it was something that I could never share with someone for fear of deportation. That's it's a lot to digest. Um, and, um, you know, you say it so fluently now because it's your story of course um but you know I, I feel like especially since the last time we spoke um one thing i picked up on was over the years you've become more and more comfortable with with your story um and um you know i think for the for the average listener out there let, let's take a step back and you, and you pointed out that you know what your father was doing wasn't what we see in mainstream media, you know, depicted, you know, in Narcos, for instance. I want to get a little bit more explicit um, and really kind of paint a picture for what that was like. And I know you were young, but, you know, maybe what your mom had described to you. Of course, yeah. So um, I know we had discussed one event that really sticks out to me the most, right? And so um, I'm about five years old at the time. And I recall that we were going to go see a movie. I don't recall what movie it is. It was a very long time ago. Um, but we kept circling this one house. My dad was driving at the time and my mom was giving a hard time like, hey, moron, why don't you just park? Um, and we finally did. Uh, and the next morning on the news, the people in the, the house that we kept circling were dead. And my mom confronted my dad, who was in a good mood at the time and said, you know, did you have anything to do with this? Um, to which he immediately, his demeanor changed. And he responded, if you say anything to anyone, I will kill your mother, I will kill your father, your brothers, everyone will die. Um, and I, I remember this argument as a child a lot differently, right? Because you, you sort of creatively infantilize stuff. Um, but she had taken scissors and stabbed my dad in the thigh and said, you don't ever threaten me. Um, and that, that, is, that was the huge turning point for her where she realized that if we continue to stay um, in our current situation at that time, I most likely would either become a part of something very dangerous or we would lose our lives. What was your first memory? You know, whether it was there or was it here, um, you know, as a child? I remember being um, in Colombia with my father, right? And and I think that there's a lot of things that I current like consistently reflect on as now as an adult, where I was like, oh, that was weird. Like he would take me around um, a, like big motorcycle groups to hang out, and you know they would exchange things. And now understanding kind of probably what was being exchanged or things that were going on. Um, it, you know, for me, I was just spending time with my dad. For my dad, he was just conducting business. And, you know, I, I understand kind of where he comes from in terms of that desperation, but a lot of it was being um, surrounded by that. Uh, to this day, um, there's a, a photo that kind of exists in my family sphere 
of the leader of the cartel um, holding me as a baby, as an infant after being born. Um, and so it's this, this photo that sort of notoriously exists um, of someone that like uh, destroyed a lot of lives in Colombia. Wow. Um, have you seen that recently? Uh, I have, I saw it a few weeks ago and, and, you know, I, I kind of have requested it again. Um, cause it's tough. It, this is back, you know, before iPhone. So you have to ask, uh, individuals who aren't good with technology to look through their photo albums to send you something. Um, but, you know, after we had our last conversation, I, I kind of knew I wanted it, um, because it, it kind of means a lot in terms of where my life started to where my life is now. So your mom made the decision to up and leave. You know, she's uprooting you. Um, you make it to New York. Truth of the matter is you probably can't digest a lot of what's going on at that point, right? Um, how are those really early years for you in New York in the sense that um, were you able to, um, um, you know, get any sort of rationale for what was happening? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I, I was still so young. I, I was here maybe like six, seven years old at that point, um, starting elementary school here as one does in a language that I didn't speak. And at the same time, trying to sort of reconcile um, all of these things that my mom was telling me and that uh, my, you know, my father was existing in. And uh, he, I mean, he found us, he fa somehow found her phone number, um, was able to call and say, you know, bring my son back home, or I'm gonna kill you. And my mom would hang up the phone, it was like, you know, try again, when you want to be nice about it, um, because she was not going to give in. Um, but, you know, with that, that that's kind of that, like, dark trauma that I was going to, like, elementary school to play with blocks every day. And what was the story that you were told? Uh, the, I mean, the story that I was told was all the things that, that my my father had done, all the things that I can't tell people about. Um, my, at, at, that, at that age? At that age. Wow. Uh, my, my mom was very upfront. She did not sugarcoat it um, because she did not want me to risk talking positively about any situation that could fall negatively on us. Um, and so I, I grew up at a very young age. She worked late nights. Uh, my babysitter was a Super Nintendo that one of her coworkers had given her. Uh, and, and that's kind of how that worked out. But in the reality of the situation, like I was a kid that was struggling to understand like why their lives had changed so much and just trying to balance, I think, a, a care and, and a love for my mom, but also like why I couldn't be with my dad. And it was, you know, as a kid, you can't really understand that level of violence and that level of uh, vitriol that someone could do. Um, but as you get older, you can kind of take a step back and sort of understand it better. Yeah. You know, there's, there's something special about circumstances, you know, that are essentially dire emotionally in a way, in the sense that, you know, you realize that you've been dealt a certain card of a, a deck of hand, a deck of cards, excuse me. Um, and, you know, my saying is, you know, you're dealt that deck because you were built to handle it. You know, as you were going through this 
And you said it yourself, you had to grow up quick. And, you know, when I speak to a lot of people who had been going through different situations, whatever their obstacle may be, there's that common theme of growing up quick. Um, and in a way, it's a blessing and a curse. It's, it's a curse in the sense that maybe, you know, you could have maintained a little bit more of that childhood innocence for a little bit longer. It's a blessing in the sense, in the sense that maybe, you know, you started to develop a little bit of that strength at an early age. Um, and, and that strength, you know, meaning, you know, that, that grit, that perseverance, that ability to kind of withstand what life throws at you. Um, did you start to feel that as you were going through this at an early age, or did it take a while for you to kind of accept that, you know, that was a shitty situation and, you know, this is what I'm going to do about it. I think it's a little bit of both. And we discussed it sort of previously offline. Um, you know, I, I knew immediately I was different than my classmates. Uh, their lives were completely different. They were able to talk about the things that they were enjoying to be a part of. I had to keep secrets. I had to keep secrets as, as a kid, which is improbable for a child. Um, and, you know, I processed it the best way I could as a kid. Um, however, as I got older, I think that I had um, a really difficult reckoning with the um, the person that I was originally, the, the person that is from a certain area that comes from an individual that committed crimes to the extent that they did, and this uh, assimilating personality uh, within the United States. Um, and I think that as you struggle to reconcile the two, you get into some really dark places and because you don't know yourself, right? You've kept yourself a secret for so long from everyone around you. And knowing that if you said something to somebody, your life could end, Um, you could be deported, you might go back and and it might not end well for you. Um, And if you're not honest, then you're sort of falling into this persona of someone you're not, you're not. Um, and, and I think in, I've gotten to a good point now in my life where I can reconcile both and I've been able to kind of come out of, you know, certain circumstances and choices that I made in, in the pits of those uh, adversarial moments. Um, but it, it definitely took a while and I definitely was not a kid at the time. I did not enjoy being uh, a child because I, I understood the reality of a situation that none of my classmates could ever empathize with. I mean, it wasn't really a a situation built for a child. And then you were essentially dealing with it, um, you know, at at that age. So for the context of the listeners, let's just kind of fast forward really quick. At what point um, did you get the citizenship or at least, you know, were you able to kind of take that burden off your back? How old were you at that point? Um, yeah, so I think the first time that we sort of faced the crisis when it came to our citizenship and naturalization um, was after 9-11. So after 9-11, um, a, a government entities started to crack down on uh, undocumented immigrants just across the nation. Uh, my mom received a letter at her job because they were using fake documentation at the time. And luckily enough, her job um, sponsored her. Um, they were willing to sponsor her and they, they loved the work that she did. And so we went through that process. And so I, I was maybe my first year of undergrad when I officially got my green card, which is kind of your like little yeah. warning card. You can't get into any trouble. 
you, you have to, you know, stay right and tight. And, uh, I, you know, I'm still struggling with the concept because I haven't been able to make any mistakes. Um, I've had to be as close to perfect as possible. Not to say, you know, you don't do like certain things on the side that you don't get caught for. Um, but it's still difficult to kind of keep this appearance of someone that you're not. And so I eventually became a citizen. Uh, I would say about four years later from that point, it was after I had graduated college. And I think that's when a lot of things hit the fan. I had taken my first like real toxic job um, out of my master's program and I had recently become a citizen. And so I, I really developed a like a borderline horrific drinking problem. I would work all the time, um, but I, I couldn't, all the people that knew me had no idea of the story of who I was. And yeah. so how do you all of a sudden open up to these people? I was like, Hey, I know we've known each other for 10 years. Um, by the way, I've been keeping this deep, dark secret from you. Um, and this is how I feel about it. And let me process all my emotions because now I can't, now I'm a citizen and I can talk about these things because I've held them in for almost my whole life. That's incredible. So, um, thinking about, you know, let's call it from the age of eight or nine years old to 22, 23, um, when you got your citizenship or even when you got your green card, you know, let's not even go to 22, 23 during that period. When was it the hardest to just kind of be middle of the pack, right? You couldn't be front and center. You couldn't be all the way in the back. You really had to be in the middle and you had to kind of just blend in. So like, you know, was it, you know, being that younger boy who maybe wanted to play sports and, and win and stand out and compete? but like, you know, like you could be good, but you just couldn't be the best. Or was it, you know, that high schooler who really wanted to maybe perform academically, who again, you know, knew he was competent, but again, couldn't really be the top of his class competent um, because again, he would stand out. Like, was there one specific period where, where it irritated you more or was it just consistent throughout? I, I think I have a few different situations like that, and you might find them uh, sort of humorous. Um, from that age of, you know, eight to towards the rest of elementary school, whatever that is, uh, sixth grade, I was different where I went to school. Um, I learned the English language pretty well enough that I started winning spelling bees at my school. Um, and then there was more of a district wide spelling bee. Um, where there were a lot of people and a lot of eyes, um, to which my mom shared, you can't win this. Uh, she, she literally said to me, you cannot, unfortunately, if you win, you might be in the newspaper and we can't have that. Um, so I remember to this day, uh, the word was beautiful. And I specifically misspelled the word beautiful that I knew how to spell um, in order to just lose. Uh, and that was really hard because I knew I had worked hard. Um, I knew I deserved it, but I knew that it meant more long-term for me to just lose there. And that carried over into aspects of high school. Um, I was a really high achieving student, but I would sort of sabotage myself in certain circumstances. I would understand 
where my GPA was, and then maybe not do so well on a certain test. I didn't want to be, um, and you know, not, not to say that I would have gotten it. We had a lot of brilliant students, but I didn't even want to be in the running for valedictorian. I didn't want to be in the running for something that would put me in the public eye, seeing as my high school was given a fake social security number for me to attend. So the last thing that I want is for some college or some entity to start requesting my documentation because most likely won't end well. Um, and this was sort of what was, was being imbued. Um, I was a three sport athlete in high school and you know, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, the, the second coming of Michael Jordan by any means, but um, there were, there were times where I could have performed much better than I did. Um, and I just, would feign injury or I would purposely just make certain choices that would get me benched uh, because I knew who was in the audience. And I knew that if people dug deeper into the very loose story that they had of me, um, given the time frame that I was in, that my longevity might be stunted in the United States. And so what was worth more for me? Was it winning the game uh, and having the opportunity to be the star or be here for the rest of my life. You know, as I kind of hear you say that, I think that if it was me, especially at that age, there must've been some pent up rage. I mean, you know, was it, was there? And if so, like, where did you take it out? You know, was it, you know, on your own or at the gym? Was it, you know, when you got home kind of just, you know, tough conversations with your mom. I just can't imagine. Yeah, I would, I would say it was definitely the gym. Um, I, in high school, I was in the greatest shape of my life. Uh, and, and, you know, I, well, as most people are I, that really do enjoy and value sports at that age. Um, but it, it was hard. My, my mom was always a, a grounding center. Uh, she was never going to budge. She never went to, any games. She never put herself out there. Um, as I hit accomplishment after accomplishment, she just knew when to step in to tell me, okay, enough. Um, but never to celebrate my accomplishments at that point. Um, so it was like this feeling of like never being good enough, which I think exists just, uh, within like immigrant children forever. Um, but yeah, I, I was angry because I did not choose my circumstances. It wasn't fair that those around me who worked a little less harder or, you know, were a little lazier or just didn't care had the opportunities that I did not when I knew that I deserved them. I mean, you said it very well. I mean, I, 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 I get 100% where you're coming from. Um, and I empathize with it. Um, is your mom your hero? I would say now at my age, I would say yes. Right. If you were to ask me when I was in high school, I would say she made the worst decision ever leaving Columbia. Maybe I could have been a star there. Um, but, you know, I, I am very lucky to be in the situation that I'm in today. Um, every day that I get a chance to maybe achieve something better. I am a citizen now, so I don't have to, you know, worry about what people think. Even when, you know, you and I had the conversation about this podcast um, and, you know, we had the conversations around just, you know, if 
Eddie, if you don't want to say something like, I, I get it, this is hard to tell. I think it's important for me to finally like reconcile the two, right. And exist, like understand that I am a, like a two nationality person. I always will be. And hiding one or the other is not helpful to myself. It's not helpful to my mental health. It's not helpful to those around me because it's not who I am. You don't get to know who I am in the same way that you mentioned, you learned a lot about me. I learned a lot about you. Right. And um, the only way that that happens is having these honest conversations. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say my mom is, is my hero because she literally came to the United States with no backing, no support and fear for her life. And she pushed everyone she could forward. Right. And she's still in a good situation now. Um, She is a great mom. um, Even, even though sometimes may still be a little trauma inducing, but I think that's just moms are moms. Yeah. Moms are moms. Um, But she's a great grandmother and um, she's a a huge support system. Right. So Picking up on where we were earlier, you you graduated college. You talk about um, getting you know your first job, toxic environment. You leaned on alcohol. Um, you know it, it was the way that I heard it. May not be the way that you were saying, but I'll tell you what I heard. I heard you know I went through all this shit. I hit the end of the road. I didn't know where to go, and this was the only path that I saw. Um, and while I knew it was hurting me, I didn't necessarily want to stop at the time. Um, does that sound right? And if it does sound right, let's talk about, you know, what happened in terms of the trajectory from there. Um, you know, it seems like there's just phases of like pit peak, pit peak, which is in line again with, with where we're trying to go with the conversation. Um, but let, let's pick up from there. Yeah, I would say that that's definitely when I reached my biggest pit. Um, You know, I I was blessed enough to finally go through the naturalization process. Um, And that was it. That was the end of a road. That was the end of a lifelong chapter of something I was supposed to achieve. Like that was it, period. Um, And so at that point, now I could be myself. But what did that even mean? Um, I was in a toxic environment at work, which didn't even allow me to reflect. I was just working all the time and I needed an outlet. Um, I I stopped working out. I, it's something that like meant so much to me. Um, I I let all these little things go. I let friendships go and just kind of, you know, little by little started drinking a little more, a little more just to kind of numb myself and get through the night. Um, And, you know, I, I, I went from starting that job being about like 160 pounds going up to 205. Um, And that was just being sedentary, being depressed, being in a really dark place, this constant spiral, um, allowing all of these traumas to finally like manifest themselves and just trying to drink it away because that's what felt right in the moment. And I knew it wasn't working, right? I would try to make myself feel better and say, tomorrow I'll do this. And tomorrow would never come. Um, and I, I would just consistently every night just cycle through that same routine. Um, and it would feel helpless, but in reality, the only person that was fully in control of it was myself. Wow. Um, and in terms of, you know, realizing, was there a moment where you realized like, you know, 
there needs to be something done here. Yeah, I think I started to actually get like panic attacks and like actual physical health problems around the choices I was making. Um, I, I was having, I felt like I would wake up in the middle of like sleep and just not be able to breathe. And I remember that happening multiple times. I don't know if that's panic induced. That was a combination of like all the substances that I, that I was using at the time. Um, and, you know, I remember it being like, this isn't healthy. Um, and I really do need to change this. Right. And I remember I, I signed up for a, a gym membership and I would always make excuses not to go. Um, but it, it wasn't really until I took the time to reflect on everything that I had gone through in my life to that point, I think was the epiphany where, yeah, I did reach a period in the end of the road in terms of the naturalization process, but why did I have to choose that to be the end now that I'm able to live and do all the mistakes that, uh, I wasn't able to do when I was younger, uh, why did I make the choice then to do that and like not pull myself out of it? And so little by little, I think I, I started to kind of psych myself out and um, mess with myself and just really try to um, get myself out of that like trauma induced substance fueled uh, mental state, because if not, uh, it was not going to probably end well for me. Yeah, no, I think that was um, the right train of thought for sure. I mean, I, I remember one time much different kind of situation, but where I found myself spiraling a little bit in the sense that I was losing a little bit of control around, um, my priorities. And, and one of them was this one, it was the day after Christmas where I kind of just drank too much and I, I woke up and I, and I kind of looked in the mirror and I had this, this this kind of moment where I saw the person staring at me and he just wasn't the person that I wanted to be. Um, he was, he definitely didn't look like the person that I wanted to look like, that's for sure. Um, you know, he didn't have the skin complexion because, you know, when you're, you know, when you're drinking a lot, obviously it impacts your, your skin. Um, and he was unhappy. I mean, he was only happy in, in very, you know, few moments. Um, and so I, I remember that because for me, it was actually a turning point on a, on a health journey, not on, you know, necessarily a turning a life around. And, and then for me, that ended up being a turn my life around, uh, toward fitness kind of journey. Um, you know, it was kind of more unintended. It was more just to kind of, you know, be healthier all around. Um, so I get it. And I, 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 I can really, um, appreciate that. So, you know, talking about all this, I keep thinking about one thing and it's, it's about as you were going through all of these things, um, you know, in your younger adult years, how much did the idea of your own potential run through your head? You know, even as you were going through those pit moments um, and making some of those decisions that maybe, you know, are regrettable and you probably knew in the moments that you were making some of these decisions, they weren't the greatest decisions, but you were still doing them. Did you ever at any point, um, you know, doubt your own potential or throw it away or just say like, screw it, you know, like whatever happens, happens with life? Or were you always, you know, 
in the back of your mind, strong-willed on the conviction of, no, no, I'm, I'm going to be successful in this life. I'm just going to get this out of the way now. And, you know, and then I'll figure this out. I think it's funny you say that. Uh, I really, I would say, reflect more with the latter of what you just said, which is that, you know, as I, as you mentioned, looked at myself in the mirror the next day and was disappointed in the choices I had made and the person that I was, I knew who I was deep down inside. I knew what I was worth. I knew my potential. I just couldn't figure out how to manifest it enough so it could take over. Um, and, you know, you, you talked a little bit about your fitness journey. And, and I think that that um, has to do with the concept of just obsession, right? At that time, I was obsessed with making myself feel better by any means, not really taking a step back as to what that really meant on my health at the time. Um, and, you know, the only way to unleash that potential within me was to then obsess about something else, something that wasn't my current state, something that wasn't this sort of feeling sorry for myself, um, but rather uh, pushing myself forward, propelling myself forward and setting some kind of goal enough that would get me out of it. Um, I was still existing well within my professional context and then all the things that I had to do and no one had any idea the demons I was battling. Um, and, and I think that that's just years of hiding um, all the traumas that I had lived through um, and all these like mental health quests. Um, but I, I knew that I had to be more. I knew that I had to get there. Did you know you will get there? I felt I would. Um, I felt that eventually one morning I would stare at myself in the mirror and just say enough's enough. Uh, this is it. And we're done with this. Um, and you know, as, as you know, and as I know, it's, it's not an overnight thing, right? You know, it's not like uh, Hey, enough's enough. And then tomorrow here I am a new man. So, you know, let's talk about the small steps from there that it kind of took, whether, you know, again, we can both relate on, on the fitness side of things and how, you know, we made the, made the decision conscientiously put our best foot forward, realized at one point that, you know, we were going to get back into that, into that, into that scene and probably not be the best people out there um, and probably fall flat on our faces um, and, and figure it out uh, a few times, uh, you know, before we did get back up to that potential. But then there's also, you know, the grander things in life too, aside from that, right? Like, you know, you're highly accomplished. You're a doctor. I mean, um, was that always in your vision? Um, was that something that you had seen back then? Or was that something that, um, you know, you, you picked up on as you were going through the change? So yeah, that was, that was loaded. Thank you for that question. Um, I would say I thought about my doctorate very early on, but I thought it would be in the same field that I did my bachelor's in, which was English literature. Um, the, the small steps that I took really was, uh, just understanding that my current professional context was incredibly toxic for me and just creating the cycle that I was just leaning into. Um, it was lazy on my part, but I guess at that time in my life, I was just okay with being complacent and lazy. Um, even though deep down inside, I hated myself for it. Um, so I job searched and I started to go out on runs and go out for very slow 5Ks and sign myself up for stuff that like, because I knew 
I was very goal oriented still. So if I would sign up for something, I'm not the type of person that's going to no show it, I'm going to show up, and then go out there and just suck, right? Just be terrible at it enough where then I'm looking at myself and I'm like, you know, you could have been better, but you've made a lot of choices lately that put you in a position to not succeed. Um, Start then, you know, as those, those thoughts come in, then it's like, all right, you know, let me, let me get rid of this alcohol. Like, let me see what small changes I can make. Let me keep going out there running. Let me keep going out there working out. Um, And I eventually did get out of that situation. And the, the doctorate came by a little bit, later on, I know we, we sort of discussed that previously. Um, and, and that took a, a certain step of motivation to kind of reinvigorate, like who I was like, finally reconcile. Yeah. Um, you know, as you were saying that it, it kind of made me think of something throughout your childhood, right? You said that you had plenty of opportunities to be better as an athlete and, and you couldn't. And you, you basically had it down to, let's call it an art of, you know, getting the injury at the right time or, you know, figuring out a way to quell that attention off you. Did you have to deal with any sort of imposter syndrome once you were kind of free of that, right? And now you can be the fastest one out there. You can be the strongest person in the room if you wanted to be. Do you ever use that as an excuse anymore? Or has it kind of turned around now where you're like, no, 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 I'm never going to not give it my all anymore. Like, I'm, you know, I'm always going to give it 100%, whatever that means. I'm just interested, you know, based on the psychology of your childhood, adolescence, young adulthood and into, into now. Yeah, I would say early on in, in sort of this period of time, especially years that followed, the imposter syndrome was strong. I didn't feel that I deserved any of the accomplishments that I was getting. As I um, you know, completed certain professional milestones or personal milestones, um, and you know, I would get high fives or congratulations. It just, I was always like, who are you congratulating? You're congratulating me? That's, that's weird. Um, because I never, I, I learned early on that I can't be the person that's celebrated. Um, It's a mentality that was sort of imbued. And I think that shifted very highly once I did leave my that professional context, and then um, had at least a healthy, stable um, workplace, because then I did find things, um, you know, whether it's working out, whether it was professional things where I finally was like, you know what, I'm going to give this my all. And, uh, you know, you and I have worked out together. There have been times where, um, you know, those halls, I, I would die in a workout class. Like I would be hurting really bad, but I would get there the next day and do it again. Um, because I stopped making excuses for it and just kind of decided to just go for it because the worst thing that could happen is that I discovered a new high for myself rather than a low. Yeah. Um, as you were saying that, you know, I was thinking about, you just completed the Brooklyn marathon. So congratulations on that. And I saw that you ran it in 359. So talk to me about that last minute. I I know that last minute had to have been, you know, probably the hardest minute of the race for you. Yeah. So my, my goal on to do it was, uh, four hours, uh, that, that was my goal. And I did not feel like I was going to hit it the last half mile. I was walking. It was over. 
right in my head and i was in those dark places again of all the things that i didn't deserve and i didn't work hard enough to get it and so that's why i am where i am um and i had the motivation of of my wife and my friend rachel at the time who were there to really push past that um and the last half mile finally when i was like i just got over it right because eventually like it was like quit or just go for it and i decided to just go for it and brought my pace down probably to about like a, a 713 um in that last little bit just to scrounge you know 14 seconds uh under that four hour, four hour mark um it felt great. And the first thing I asked once I crossed the line was, did I make it? I didn't care that I finished the marathon. I cared about the goal I had set for myself because I think once I got myself out of those pits and like I mentioned, I'm goal oriented. Um, it was knowing that, um, I hit it. I did it. I set my mind to it and nothing stopped that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I, I saw it and, um, as a runner, I mean, I got jitters just, just even just seeing it, just seeing, just seeing that 359. I know how much that means. I know what that last minute is all about. I know, you know, the instincts, the decisions that have to go into it. That do I just, do I give it my all or do I just, you know, cave into my body? Um, and to no surprise, you know, you, you did it and, um, you know, congratulations, super proud of you for that. Um, I want to make sure that we touch on one or two other things. Um, you know, let's, let's kind of take this to the highest level now, right? Like you experienced something super unique throughout your lifetime, right? That most people cannot relate to. Obviously it's made you the person that you are. It's helped you build yourself. You know, now you have a beautiful family. You have a lot of accomplishments like academically, athletically, et cetera. What would you consider your life's purpose to be? It's interesting you say that, right? And, I, and I've thought about that a lot over the last few years. And it really stems from my choice to pursue my doctorate. Um, I knew I wanted to do it years ago, but I couldn't find the motivation to do it. Right. I always made I made some kind of excuse, even as I pulled myself out of seeing some of these dark areas and work through um, aspects of imposter syndrome that comes back and ebbs and flows. Um, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get to it. And it took uh, the, the last few years of politics to really kind of um, understand that uh, I realized that there were a lot of individuals like myself trying to get citizenship within the United States, trying to um, be a part of society here, coming from different backgrounds that were uh, kind of being demonized in media. Um, and I thought about, you know, I got to keep all of my secrets, um, but that's most likely because social media and, and media around this was not as accessible at the time. I kind of got lucky because um, it could have been a lot different. And I realized that I want to give others like me the opportunity. There are so many um, young individuals that just want the opportunity to be a contributing member within this society that want to not fully assimilate, but exist within two nationalities. And that should be okay within this massive melting pot. 
um, that don't get that chance. And so I pursued my doctorate for that reason. I applied um, as I saw um, all more and more media around, you know, these, these kids in the Southern border, because that could have very easily been me. And so I would say my purpose in life now is to continue to utilize the experiences from my personal life, the experiences from my professional life, um, all aspects of, you know, people that I meet, individuals I share stories with, uh, my academic pursuits and career um, to kind of uh, reconcile all of those into someone that can open doors for that generation behind me. There are so many uh, individuals like myself that do feel that imposter syndrome, that are afraid to speak up, that don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, that can make such a massive difference in society today. And I want to help be uh, sort of the person that tells them it's okay and that I hear them and that I want them to tell their stories and not be afraid to tell others it, not be afraid to go on a podcast and share it, um, or not be afraid to just tell their friends and be a little bit honest and process a lot of those traumas early on to give them the chance to move on. Very beautifully said. I, you know, I, I commend you very much for that. I think that uh, people like you are very necessary for this world. Um, and um, I think your heart is in the right place. Um, and I stand with you on, on that mission. Um, is there anyone out there, you know, who maybe has blazed the trail for you or has kind of set an example for you, whether it be, you know, someone influential or someone personal or, you know, community leader of sorts that, you know, you, you kind of feel have, has helped you shape the path forward? Yeah, it's funny you say that because I've thought about, you know, who my quote unquote heroes are. Um, and the more I reflect on it, the more I realize it's the everyday hardworking person, like aside from my mom, who gave me the opportunity to be here today, um, being able to have a conversation with somebody that opens up to you and shares their experiences, shares the things that they've gone through and how they're trying to get to a certain place is so meaningful to me because those stories are ultimately how I get to learn about other cultures, ultimately how I get to um, just have more diverse experiences. You and I having a conversation, that's helpful to me because I've never lived in your shoes. I can't assume what it's like to be you. I can't say, oh, I understand that because the way that you've lived it has always been different than most likely how I would have. Um, being able to see, oh, you know, Bishoy understood his life to be here at this moment and he made these choices due to this and that's very realistic to me rather than some kind of media curated individual that um, has all the access points to uh, propel themselves forward uh, it's this very real uh, conversational aspect with everyday people um, so I would say I'm ultimately a collection of all the experiences and conversations I get to have with that folks around me. That's awesome. No, I think that's a great answer. And I think that's one of the things that I've um, experienced in undertaking this project um, of mile 40 is a lot of the people that I've brought on, I knew, but I didn't know their, their story. And I, I think honestly, even when, 
when I came out with my story, most people didn't even know my story. And it, it's, it, it, it's really cool to see that, you know, some of the heroes around us are literally right around us. You know, they're not, they're not high in the sky. They're not living, you know, in, in these castles. They are um, everyday hardworking uh, people who are just living out their narratives. Um, we're running tight on time. There's so much I want to ask you, but um, I'm going to try to stick to the things that I was thinking about. Any major regrets, you know, across, across your adult life? I think I'll always regret not going for it when I was uh, in high school and college in terms of sports. Uh, You know, who knows, maybe I could have gotten citizenship a lot faster. Uh, I, you know, I was a three sport athlete in high school, as I mentioned, and then I played uh, soccer and undergrad for a year uh, before I quit. Uh, And and quitting was difficult and uh, just kind of seeing your body language there. I'll go into why I quit. I was sort of surrounded at the time uh, on on that team from other individuals who had their shot and they failed at it. Um, so it was a Division three school, and they lost out on scholarships for whatever the reason may be. They just never they didn't have the opportunity to seal the deal, and they were bitter about it. They didn't take advantage of the situation. They just kind of hated themselves for it. And at that time in my life, that's not the energy I wanted, even though I did eventually manifest that energy. Once I got my citizenship, um, I, I knew I didn't want to quit at that time. Um, and I regret not working just a little bit harder um, to maybe see what could have come of that. Wow. Um, I, I think that it's, it's a really powerful story just because there's a lot of college athletes out there um, who kind of go through experiencing that, that unknown chemistry amongst the different kind of teammates coming from different places and, and going through um, different ups and downs. Um, and so um, I, I, I see why you did what you did. Um, and I think it's definitely something that could be of value to a lot of people out there. Um, especially, you know, people don't forget their college careers and people don't forget like the decisions that they made athletes in particular. Um, so I totally hear you on that. Um, would, would love to quickly touch on our experience at tone house, uh, because, um, you know, that, that's where you and I had kind of thought we met. We actually met years prior to that and completely forgot. Um, but I, I want to talk really quick about the New York workout scene and, and Tone House in particular. Um, you know, for listeners out there, it, it's not just cliche to say, and I, I think that Eddie would agree with me, it is the hardest workout in New York, in the New York boutique fitness scene. And it was something that I kept hearing before I had ever gone there. Eddie, I don't know if it's something that you kept hearing before you had ever gone there. And then, you know, eventually I had to mentally build myself up to get in there. And then when I got in there, you know, it is the hardest workout. I can, we can attest to it. Um, but you start to, to see these people who um, are extremely humble um, with regards to how they approach fitness and how they approach um, working out and, and their consistency and, 
um, their dedication to sport. Um, and it was kind of an enlivening experience uh, being a part of that community. Um, I'm interested to, interested to hear a little bit about, you know, how you got involved with Tone House um, and, um, you know, your, your outlook for that community. Yeah, so I stumbled upon Tone House, I think once I was starting to get a lot of my fitness back after being in that toxic job, and now I was transitioned to my new one. Um, and uh, I, I had no idea what I was going into, I actually was a little bit more blind than you were going in, in terms of understanding the um, difficulty of it. Um, and when I went, uh, I recall kind of underestimating and just saying like, this can't be that hard. Like everyone keeps hyping this up when I walk in and 25 minutes in, I was in the bathroom throwing up. Uh, it, it was that hard. Um, but it was the first time that I faced a challenge, um, that I was like, wow, this normally I could kind of make up some kind of excuse, especially at that point where I was in my life as to like, why I couldn't do it. Um, it was being basically told, kind of by myself, like, you weren't good enough for this. You need to come back and be good enough for this. And I kept going and kept encountering people who, you know, for an hour of their day, they chose to pick the hardest thing they could do because anything else that they would choose to do after that point was a lot easier. And that mentality really stuck with me. Uh, because yeah, if you can go to some place and be tortured for an hour, you can get through anything. You can get through sleepless nights. You can get through that hard test. You can get through all these different situations because you're making that choice. Um, and you develop these bonds with people that um, don't cut corners, right? Because no one's looking at them the whole time. They could choose to take shortcuts. They could choose to... Um, cheat themselves. And you recognize the people that don't, the people that you know, even if you're not looking, or even if, uh, you know, they're, they're taking a little bit longer than someone else, they're going for it, they're giving everything they have. Uh, because it didn't come down, I think, to fitness, like how fit you were, rather, it came down to a mental tenacity that exists in the deep recesses of like, who people really are. Um, because some of the best friendships that I've made have been from there because it's these people who, when my back is turned, they weren't cheating in class. They weren't, um, you know, taking shortcuts or cheating themselves out of their hard work. And so it was the same people that that would translate to in personal relationships. I knew that that person would work hard to be my friend because it didn't matter if, you know, they were getting something out of it or if they looked cool on Instagram um, it's just who they were at their core. And I think the, the folks that, you know, partake in exercises like that or workouts like that, um, and choose that, um, choose that mental grit, that tenacity time after time. And they know if they're cheating themselves or not, um, that speaks volumes to themselves about it. Um, and people notice, right. People will eventually notice and see, um, but I, I think that it's much more mental than physical, uh, and personally how I feel about it, you know, just reflecting on the many times that mm -hmm. I've been dead there. Yeah. I mean, I, as you were saying that I was smiling and laughing, nervously laughing too at times, but it's true. I mean, I think that 
it was the idea of knowing you were in the trenches with these people who, like you said, were willing to torture themselves for an hour every day, coming out knowing that, you know, if they were able to do that, there really wasn't much that the day could put in front of them that they couldn't do. And I remember when I was doing it, I was kind of in um, some of the more difficult points of my professional career. Um, and, and for me, it, w- it was an outlet. And, and, I, and again, to echo your sentiment, it was especially cool to recognize that it, it really wasn't about being the fittest person in the room. It was about um, being mentally, mentally willful and, you know, accepting that everyone in the room was there to support you. Um, so that was our three-minute commercial for Tone House for anyone out there listening. Um, but Eddie, I want to say thank you. I mean, this was an incredible, incredible um, episode. I'm very, very humbled that you, A, use this platform to share your story. B, you were able to really leave lessons for other people to kind of hold on to, to look up to, to aspire to. Um, and, um, you know, I have no doubt that the future is very bright for you um, and that I hope that um, we can connect on another time for something like this. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more that you and I can go into. Otherwise, I wouldn't be cutting it short. Thank you. I absolutely appreciate the chance to be here and um, just kind of share my story, but also just learn more about you as well. You know, I, I knew you from Tone House. I knew you before that. Like you mentioned, we played basketball together, though we didn't realize it. Um, but just kind of understanding what you've been through and understanding how you've overcome that. Um, and so those conversations, I think, have been incredibly beneficial to me. Um, and I think what you're doing here with this podcast is absolutely amazing. I think spotlighting um, all of these people, like you mentioned, uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to toot my own horn by any means, but these everyday heroes that wake up and you know they they exist with their Clark Kent glasses that you don't realize they're there uh, they, because you never know what someone's going through and you never know what they're working through. I'm sure there have been plenty of times for you personally, like you said, we could go into it in a later time that you were not in a great place and you still went out there and you gave 110%, whether it was your workout, whether it was with your friends, your family, your workplace. And and I think kind of giving folks the opportunity to reflect on that um, is fantastic. And, you know, I, I wish you all the best with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.